G'day and welcome to another episode of Spectrum Uncensored. Today I have with me Mel Kay from Brisbane. Thank you so much for popping in and saying hello. Oh, thanks, Jamie Lee. Thanks for having me. Could you tell me a little bit about what your profession is and your business name, where you're located, all that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. So I'm an occupational therapist. I've been an occupational therapist for about 13, 14 years. Um, I've pretty much always worked with children um, with, yeah, a lot of focus on children who are neurodivergent. I currently am working at Inside Out Therapy. I am both a clinician or a therapist there and I'm also the director um, and owner and founder of the clinic. Um, and we're located across two sites, one in Kalanga um, and Burpagari on the north side of Brisbane. So you're saying you've been doing it for like 14 years. That's a long yeah, time. <laughs> it is, yeah. What, um, what got you into that profession? Um, yeah, so. Because you're very, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I've been doing it, doing it a little while. Um, and to be honest, I find kind of every year that I work, I find sort of new like richness and diversity and like layers to the work, which I think if you can find a profession that continuously excites you and also challenges you I think you're you're pretty lucky and I think yeah being able to work with people for me means that there's no two days that are ever the same um and now I've actually forgotten your question it was just why why you chose so I guess that's why I continue to choose it every day the reason that I chose it in the first place was to do with a personal experience around my little sister who had um, some developmental challenges when she was little um, and she went to both speech therapy and occupational therapy for quite a number of years um, and you know some of the time it would be obviously during school hours and you know mum would make it back to say pick me up from school so I'd kind of tag along and sort of observe or you know sometimes maybe get a bit involved in the sessions um, and there was like all this swinging and like throwing bean bags and these cool like little I don't know toys and just you know, little bits and pieces that you just go, oh, this just looks like so much fun. Um, and then when I left high school, I really wanted to be a physiotherapist um, because I wanted to help people and I wanted to, you know, kind of give people the opportunity to either like rehabilitate or develop skills, um, you know, like rehabilitate in the sense like they've had a stroke or um, an injury and they're no longer able to walk or move the way that they used to. Um, and the kind of scope within physiotherapy to work with children's a lot smaller than occupational therapy. And when I kind of looked at what were my options, leaving school OT kind of came up and I was like, actually, I remember my sister doing that. And that actually seemed really cool. And I really like kids. So actually maybe I'll give that a go. That's really cool. I, I remember a lot of stuff with my brother. He had a lot of um, development delays, like he was dyslexic, but um, there was a lot of like reading and writing and stuff like that that he struggled with. And I remember vaguely going to um, appointments for him with him and, and my mother um, after school and things like that. So I do kind of, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. It's funny how um, our pasts and things like that really can influence our futures. Like it's a lot of people have been saying that to the other professionals I've spoken to. It's always ties yeah. back into an experience that they've had as a as a child or a young adult um so I think that's really cool because it's almost like you had a calling and um and went with it <laughs> yeah. yeah and I feel like I, I got that right and it it, but, it uh, is and it was a calling because yeah I'm still doing it today 
Yeah, yeah. And very good at it, I might add. But uh... <laughs> oh, um, thank you. So what would you say is your favourite? <laughs> what would you say is your favourite part of your job? I really like hearing people's stories and kind of meeting them where they're at, getting to know them, getting to, getting a sense of what sort of makes their day special and what are the, those pe- that, that person or that little person's strengths and interests. Um, what is it about sort of daily life that's challenging for them? Um, and like a particular like thing that I really love, <laughs> sounds really trivial, but is when, like I think with the spaces that we've set out with Inside Out, is when you bring bring on board like a new little person or even if you've been seeing them for a couple of sessions, then walking into the room and being like, oh, wow, like this is going to be fun. Like I thought mum and dad were bringing me here because I needed to work on my behaviour or because I needed to learn things and you were just going to teach me and tell me how to do them. And they walk in the room and they see swings, they see the rock wall, they see all these fun equipment and they're like, oh, actually, I mean, this isn't going to be so bad. And then when they come back to their next session, the next session after that, <laughs> the parent's like, oh, they couldn't wait to come back. They couldn't wait to come back. Um, and I think, yeah, the way that we work is very child-led and very play-based. So a child doesn't often even realise what they're learning or what we're, what we're kind of achieving um, in terms of the, I guess, science and the, you know, the, yeah, just what the underlying reasons why they're there and how we're working on that. They just kind of come in and see it as fun and play. Um, yeah. It's a very That's, natural yeah. thing too and like it's it's kind of like the, when they say if you find something that you love you'll never work a day in your life so it's very much like it translates the same way with with the therapy I think and um yeah I mean I've seen obviously seen your clinic and it's amazing and um yeah you've done like an amazing job decking it out and it's um yeah I can totally understand why there isn't a single kid out there that isn't excited to go <laughs> um, I know my son would constantly ask um and it's like trying to tell them no it's fortnightly it's not like every day <laughs> so oh. it's um yeah you know you're doing it right when they just keep asking to go back constantly so yeah. it's um yeah. it's pretty awesome yeah. and um obviously you have your therapy dogs too which um oh. tell me a little bit about them because they're yeah. awesome so when I kind of decided to set up my own um practice I was really interested in obviously therapy dogs and um I think kind of I kind of came into that space as it was sort of booming um, and a lot of practices were, I guess, trying trying that out. And um, I just, yeah, I'm absolutely obsessed with Australian Shepherds. Uh, I feel like they're, they're like a collectible, <laughs> you know, like there's four different kind of colours and then there's variations within that. So I was like, I've got to collect all these Australian Shepherds, different colours. Um, and I just love the nature of that breed, um, all the ones I've come across anyway. Um and the idea that I could share that love with other people and offer an interaction partner that offers a judgmental, it's like a judgment-free interaction. You know, a dog doesn't doesn't care if you come in and you haven't had a shower. A dog doesn't care if you're in a bit of a grumpy mood. Like they are happy to see you genuinely all the time and I think particularly for our kids who are highly anxious and they're, I guess you're putting more of a load on them, just even saying hello and, you know, kind of, you know, sort of being like, oh, can you, you know, we'll get you to take your shoes off or do you want to choose a game that you want to play? Like that's even a load sometimes for these kids. So having this 
you know, dog where there is no pressure. They can interact with that dog however they want, obviously within sort of safety and like considerations around um, the dog's kind of well-being, but it's a lot less pressure than what it can be sometimes with a human. And the fact that it is all nonverbal means they're not processing body language. Yeah, so I think... um, I think that that can be really powerful. So being able to share that with um, with the clients, it's it's really powerful, and it's not the right fit for every child. But when it when it is, it's it's pretty magical to watch. Yeah, I've seen a lot. Like kids light up as soon as they enter the clinic and see Amigo in there or Lucy in there, and and even the parents do. Like I'm not going to lie, so do I. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. It's something about animals, and as you say, that's it's non-judgmental. The the love's like unconditional, and there's no expectation for um conversation or anything like that and you kind of know that the dog's gonna say yes like and just embrace whatever you want to do rather than be like i don't want to do that let's do this instead so there's no not that like confrontation is not the word but like there's no disagreements um as such so they're just yeah they're easygoing and yeah they just love you no matter what they do they do yeah okay least favorite part of your job Oh, report writing. (laughs) I can talk till the hills come home about, you know, different kind of (laughs) information or strategies or, yeah, sharing information, resources, strategies, um, you know, coming up with fun games and engaging children in play. Um, But ask me to write that in a report (laughs) and why I'm doing that and how I'm doing that. It can be really tricky to kind of articulate that, particularly in a world where, NDIS maybe doesn't always value some of those, I guess, kind of more finessed sort of capacities or skills. Um, And, you know, it all comes down to dollars and cents and what can this child not do and why do they need this funding rather than like this person, you know, has a lot of strengths. It's not actually just about all the things that they can't do. They are more than that and they are more than this piece of paper that's written about them. Um, so yeah, reports would be up there. The next bit would be, I guess, just coming across kind of different people, um, from all sort of walks of life and whether it's just a parent kind of reporting on an interaction with a, with a school or a teacher or a, um, person in the community, just people who don't get it, um, and are judgmental and harsh and, you know, being a parent is hard enough without then having the load of, I guess, worrying that you making accommodations for your child is you enabling them or spoiling them or you're reinforcing negative behaviours. I think um, there's just still a really big lack of awareness around what actually calm is in terms of regulation and behaviour. And I think just because a child can look like they're functioning okay at school, it doesn't mean that they are. And I think it's just still the lack of awareness and understanding about, I guess, what these kids need, what our parents are going through. There is just not enough support by a mile um, for, yeah, for neurodivergent kids and their families. So I think that's hard is for every family and child that you are helping, there are 10 more that you aren't. And even then, what you do in the clinic versus what happens out there in the real world is can still be like worlds apart. So 
you hadn't answered this one on the profile, so I don't know if you just didn't see it. So surprise question, potentially. Okay. Um, why is your profession so important? I think occupational therapists kind of, we pull so many, so much information from so many different facets of somebody's life. And we're looking at things like their ability to take care of themselves. Um, and that's whether it's a physical kind of need, like, you know, eating or brushing their teeth or getting dressed. It's about them taking care of themselves in terms of, you know, their kind of sensory needs, their emotional needs, um, and, you know, being able to look at things like sensory and self-regulation. Uh, I think we're really a profession that does that really well. Um, you know, looking at what are some of the things that you kind of have to do. So some of those like more what we call productive occupations. Um, so things like school, work, um, learning, thinking, you know, learning new skills, that kind of thing. Um, and then looking at like leisure, like what do you want to do? What do you enjoy? What, what kind of makes you who you are? Like what's your identity and that kind of, yeah, I guess sort of, yeah, more kind of reflection on the self and, what brings meaning to your life. Um, I think occupational therapists really look at strengths. We don't look at just sort of that kind of medical model of like, oh, you can't do this or you can't do that or um, focusing solely on what someone can't do and trying to remediate weaknesses. We focus on, well, let's build your strengths. Let's build the things you are good at um, and, you know, start where where you're at um, rather than where we think you should be. Um, yeah, it's almost like a holistic life skills learning experience. Like you're teaching life skills, but it's not necessarily life skills that people think about or have thought about because yeah. a lot of it comes naturally to so many people. So it's like you're really digging deep um, and you're doing basic life skills too, but all basic life skills, um, quotations. Um, but yeah, it, there's a lot of little bits and pieces that people just don't think about because it is generally a natural thing that people just learn. But for us, it's like, no, we don't just learn that. It needs to be taught to us and broken down into more simplistic steps yeah. to get us to that end goal. So it's, it is, it's very, I feel like OT is a very important um, aspect in, in therapy. Um, because it's, it is, it's teaching you how to live and survive as well to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, yeah, with, you know, working with neurodivergent individuals and their families, like you said, yeah, interaction can be painful for some people. It's hard work and they're traumatized from trying to do it like everybody else. And you've almost like, we've almost got to kind of find ways to make that pleasurable and engaging and, supportive rather than yeah kids feeling that they need to come in a mask or camouflage and kind of yeah go along with maybe activities and things that they're not that don't feel comfortable or right for them um so just being in situations where they can you know kind of have some autonomy and yeah be able to that's engage. definitely a big thing like yeah. kids do yeah do I the agree. masking a lot yeah they do they do they mask a lot and they comply a lot and you know I think occupational therapists particularly where I'm situated um, you know it is it's genuinely child-led it's genuinely play-based if a child comes in and 
they're really dysregulated and they need to spend 60 minutes in a cloud swing, we will do that because that's what that person needs, that little person needs on that day and that's okay. Yeah, I think a lot of people get confused with like a well-behaved child versus a child that's masking, like, oh, your child's so mm. well-behaved and compliant. It's like that's not necessarily, it's not, there's that mixed kind of signals with that stuff. Like people seem to think if a child is lashing out, they're naughty, but it's not necessarily the case. It's just that they're not coping yeah. um, and they're not masking anymore. They probably weren't coping before, but it just has gotten to a point where they can't mask anymore. And so it just all kind of explodes. And yeah. I find that often the the quietest ones that are the most compliant ones are generally the ones that are really bottling it up and are probably real firecrackers when it does come time that yeah. they can't hold it in any longer. So yeah. it's, it's really hard. People need to stop kind of using that language, I think, in that, um, you know, shaming kids into compliance and, and being well-behaved and stuff like that. It's very, um, yeah, it's very toxic. It is, yeah, I would agree with that. And, like, even what you're talking about in terms of the lashing out, I was chatting with a parent last week and they brought to my attention a concept called equalising, which I had never heard of before. Um, and it was like a real reframe around kids where they will lash out, um, particularly children with a PDA or um, pathological demand avoidance um, kind of profile. Equalising is that child's nervous system trying to recover from a loss of autonomy. And so they will lash out at their parent potentially because it's like a, I need to, to get back some sense of feeling like I've got agency or kind of some control over this situation and so they're doing it in a way to just I guess kind of mm. level that feeling for them um and it, it's an attempt to regulate sometimes but it's not knowing a way to do it that's going to bring back that that feeling of being in control of their body um in a way that's I guess maybe more pro-social and more um yeah I guess yeah just having other ways to do that I think that's challenging so, yeah, I thought that was an interesting concept that I hadn't thought of mm. before around some of those, you know, where kids might come home and be quite explosive. It's them trying to get back some control and it's just not knowing how to do that and how to kind of let the valve off that, I guess, yeah, all the pressure that's kind of built up all day um, and then, yeah, it kind of comes out in ways that I'm sure that they don't, they don't want it to be like that. There just isn't maybe a way another way for them to to kind of yeah let that out and to regulate that may be perceived by others as more typical and sounds like in your profession you're always learning too like oh, it's, always. and that, yeah. I think that's cool because it's it never get boring like you just you're constantly learning new things and new approaches and yeah you get to meet new people which you know you're meeting like the best people on the planet let's totally. be honest <laughs> yes definitely definitely and like I, I learned so much from the lived experience <laughs> of the neurodivergent community. Yeah, you just you just learn so much because, yeah, like that's that parent's experience. And, yes, like that concept, you know, it's a theory, but that's that, that's that parent's way of making sense of that. And there's something in that that could help another parent so that they're not feeling like, oh, I'm, you know, there's something I'm not doing right, you know, and that's like I think being able to validate people's experience because we're not alone in this, you know. These are these are things that are challenging for lots of people, you know. Um, and it's yeah, being able to, I guess, share like 
share kind of ideas and strategies as a community rather than people feeling they have to. Yeah, it takes a village and it is, it's constantly like leaning on each other for support, but also for advice. And I mean, as we've said a couple of times now, every child's different. So the the approach, approach may not work for someone, but they may not have thought about that approach and to give it a go because you never know like I know that for me it's just like I'll try anything like (laughs) like you get to the point where it's almost like desperation and you just want to you want something to work so you'll you'll be willing to try anything um even if it sounds weird but um yeah it's it is it's it's that um community support and I find that the neurodivergent community is very supportive um definitely everyone wants to help each other because they can relate so much to the struggle and they know how hard it is and they don't want to see other people struggling. So um, I kind of feel privileged and lucky in a way that I'm part of that community now because it yeah. it's kind of opened up a new world that, um, yeah, you don't know exists until you really step into it. Um, and, of course, you kind of get that... Um, that privilege to be led into those worlds and, yes. and the worlds of everyone that you work with. So mm-hmm. it's, um, yeah, it's nice, yeah. a nice, um, a nice thing. But, um, I've got a couple of questions from people that have been watching and listening. Cool. Um, so we'll, we'll finish off our, our, um, interview with those. Um, so, um, the first one is how can parents assist their child to develop their self-regulation skills. Yeah. So I'm going to kind of go straight to this kind of concept around sort of self-regulation, which I think is, you know, such a focus of what occupational therapists do. It's, you know, a big kind of challenge for neurodivergent community and and for, you know, children in general. Um, And, you know, really the way that self-regulation develops is through co-regulation and that's really about having another kind of nervous system that can support your nervous system to kind of come down or to come up depending on whether they're needing up regulation or down regulation Um, and regulation is really around it's not about again not about calm it's about matching that child matching the situation Um, so for example you know regulation in in a um roller coaster situation is going to be a very heightened excitable little person versus say the regulation or the kind of arousal state that you'd want to see for reading a book for example um so you know regulation is developed through co-regulation and that's you know the it's usually done in that parent child um kind of relationship first because it's happening very very early even um little babies and mums are doing that you know, that co-regulation, you know, baby's really upset that that food, you know, they're hungry and mum's like, oh, I know you're really hungry. Oh, food's coming soon. Oh, yeah, get ready. Here it comes. And they're kind of attuning to that child's needs and validating that and then using their kind of nervous system and that, I guess, that relational kind of like I'm in this with you kind of way of being and they're kind of soothing the child. So it's like, the baby's up here really, really upset and they're kind of going, oh, it's actually, it's, I can hear that so hard, but it's, it's going to be okay. And they might be slowing down their voice or using more of a whisper or, um, 
you know, like if it's, say, it's like the older child and they're having difficulties with regulating, say, anger or frustration, they might bring their nervous system up a little bit. Oh, I'm so, I can see that so frustrating. Like, oh, that's so hard, Um, you know, and then kind of validating that experience and then being able to kind of go, oh, like, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that was tricky. Like, you know, I, I can see that. And, you know, really using their kind of calm nervous system and being able to kind of match them but not get swept up in the emotion of that, um, where that little person is at. Um, So I think, you know, regulation is really developed through co-regulation because that's how your nervous system learns how to downregulate and how to soothe. Um, And so kind of expecting young children to do that independently is, is not, yeah. I, you could you could kind of you could argue that that most of regulation happens through some form of co-regulation um, at some point, um, and there's definitely a point where there there may be some need to kind of for someone to take themselves out of an interaction to then regulate to then kind of come back and then sort of go yeah look I was actually really you know frustrated by that and then you know being able to kind of continue, but I think um, yeah neurodivergent individuals you know they they may regulate in different ways too. Um, and, you know, stimming can be a big, a big part of that. And, um, yeah, having also like special interests or, um, yeah, being able to kind of take themselves away from interaction can also be useful. So I think regulation has different functions, but I think when we're working with our kids, we want to work through co-regulation so that they get that opportunity to experience regulation through being in with another in, um, yeah, in a state where they feel validated and they can kind of use that other person's nervous system to, to downregulate. Yeah. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I like that you've you've explained that we literally start co-regulating with um, our children from birth because that, yeah. yeah, I've never thought of it that way, but that is so true. And that's probably, you've probably noticed that more since having your own kid. Yes, <laughs> now that yes. You You've got your little guy, so kids have um, a lot of emotions. Yeah, it brings it all in perspective a little bit more. I think. Yeah, there's a lot of emotions. They really do. They really do. It's it's a lot, and um, uh, we've all been yeah. there though, technically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and you know, and whatever their experiences, you know, it might be like, oh, you know, you've taken that pair of scissors yeah. away that you know they probably were going to injure themselves so. with, but it's still, yeah, they're still, you know, having like that emotion yeah, yeah, around yeah, it. Yep. So even though I think, oh, you know, I'm taking something you know, like I'm trying to keep you safe for them, that's really dysregulating. So yeah, yep. being able to kind of meet children in that and soothe their emotions rather than sort of like, oh, you need to regulate. So have a few deep breaths and, you know, that's just not going to work with little people a lot of the time. So yeah. Okay. Another question. Um, let's see. What impacts can ADHD have on an ASD child stimming? So I guess this particular child has the comorbid of um, autism and ADHD. Um, And they've got an example of if they are hyper, is it more difficult for them to be able to focus enough to self-regulate? I think this one's really tricky to answer because I think, you know, there'd be sort of a lot more questions I would want to ask, like things like, for example, um, so with this child's hyperactivity, what sorts of things, you know, might sort of happen that cause that hyperactivity what does that hyperactivity look like Um, what are the strategies to kind of support that 
that little person to downregulate if they are really hyperactive, hyperactive in an environment or a task that doesn't kind of need that level of input. Um, also, is that hyperactivity supporting them to regulate because actually their brain is going that fast? And if there's this real discrepancy between my brain going this fast and my body needing to be still, that's not going to be regulating for them. So matching, you know, like it might be that they, they're actually processing something and they need to move in order to do that. Um, and then, you know, so there's lots of things around the hyperactivity and then I guess around their autism diagnosis, like what does that sort of, how does that kind of impact their sensory processing? How does that impact um, under sensory processing, their interoception of being able to read their own body cues, um, you know, so things like hunger, thirst, fatigue, that kind of thing. Um, and then I guess what are their stims? What sort of stims soothe them? What sort of stims are regulating to them? Um, you know, and so it might be, you know, working out what, what things might help um, and it might be working out how you put them in their environment and give them access to those um so yeah and like I think it's it could be that when they're more hyperactive they may find it harder to access those stims or they might access those stims but it might be more sort of quick short sharp bursts of it that they may be hyperactive and then they'll go to stim but it's like a very quick sort of stimulatory behavior which maybe isn't necessarily meeting that overall system nervous system need um but then they may be on to the next thing and then they may come back and stim again but it may be in a short burst. And then again, is that working for that individual? It might be. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's very individual um, and there'd probably be a lot more kind of layers I'd want to explore around that and, and working out the functions of the hyperactivity, the functions of the stimming um, and working out what things are soothing to them. And with that hyperactivity is actually we need to downregulate first so that we're in a place where that stim can actually do its full, you know, offer its full kind of benefit to that individual. I hope that answers that. It's a hard question, that one. It is, it is. And as you say, everything, OT and stuff like that's very personalised, isn't it? So it's Super it's hard to yeah. answer a question so broadly when um, you're so used to a full, a full personalised experience. Um, so I, I don't know if you'll be able to answer the next one either, um, but... The last question is how can I stim and still be productive at the same time or in the same moment? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, again, like coming back to, to I guess, someone's individual kind of sensory-based needs and, you know, our sensory system is really working on getting enough input to register um, that that input has happened. So um, that might be, you know, if, someone needs a lot of movement to kind of feel regulated um, in their body, like it's, you know, it might be that they, yeah, they, they need more of that. So how do you support them to access that? But then movement on its own may not be enough and they need, I guess, some of what we call proprioceptive or um, heavy work. So it's matching that together to help them to feel regulated and the reason they may need more is because their receptors, their sensory receptors are not able to give them enough information about where their body is in space unless they get that input. So, you know, thinking about what are the sensory needs of this person for them to feel regulated and to feel grounded and sort of organised in their body. Um, and, you know, with if we kind of think from a sensory perspective, there's lots of tools that people can use um, that don't, 
necessarily require them to be accessing that nonstop. So for example, if somebody really needs movement and heavy work, maybe it's a matter of they do some of that movement and heavy work before they sit down so that then they're not sitting there feeling the need to kind of constantly, you know, tap or, um, you know, sort of move their leg and that impacts their ability to be productive. Or it might be um, that while they're doing that, they look at getting um, something they could put under their feet, like a roller or something like that, that could give that input whilst they're still, you know, typing away at a computer or, um, you know, doing some kind of other task. So thinking about what are the sensory tools that they could access that would give that input, but still mean that they can focus on what they're doing. Um, Yeah, so again, it kind of comes down to individual sort of sensory preferences and sensory needs. Um, yeah, and then like the stimming could also be related to kind of emotional regulation too. So, you know, being aware of what things might create more dysregulation and that the stimming is helping to soothe. So being able to kind of, yeah, work those things out. So when those things do happen, they know what they can access quite quickly and immediately so that then they can kind of get on with what they need to get on without it completely kind of becoming then just full stimulatory behavior which is all consuming so i hope that answers that it's a tricky tricky one yeah yeah i think it is it is it can be hard though to be to you may be self-aware but sort of maybe in that moment it's hard to kind of know how to access those things so i guess having your environment set up for that is going to help you and then also where appropriate someone else that can maybe help you access those things particularly for our kids someone that's going to kind of be like oh but you know you could here's you know here's something you could chew or here's something you can you know here's a body sock go and get that deep pressure from that body sock before you kind of get on with your yeah yeah bit of guidance yeah yeah support to access it yep yeah well Thank you so much for coming along and chatting with me today. You've um, been a wealth of knowledge, so <laughs> hopefully your um, your chat has answered some questions for some people. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, if um, you don't have an OT or a speech or a counsellor or anything like that, um, hit up Inside Out Therapy because um, they're amazing. And, um, yeah. Thanks, Jamie Lee. Thanks. It was Yeah, it was great to be a part of this. And, yeah, I hope that someone watching this gets you know, finds this helpful and, um, yeah, it's been awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much.